Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today, as promised, we are actually going to get into the first couple of verses of Ephesians 1.1. So you can begin this morning by turning to Romans 2. I didn't say we'd get there immediately. <laughs> Eventually, we will get to Ephesians 1.1. But it is necessary that we spend some time reading from Romans 2, just so that you understand the way that God does see us. I said Romans 2, I actually mean Romans 3, that's where we'll be reading. So that we understand what is known as the biblical anthropology, in other words, how does God see us? Does he see us as morally neutral and just doing the best we can? Or does he see us as completely depraved, fallen, incapable sinners? Well, the answer, of course, is number two, or B, because I was never good at categorizing. God sees us as fallen, depraved, corrupt, incapable sinners. And we really have to start there in order to understand the things that Paul is about to lay out as the fundamentals of how people get saved. Because far too much of religion in the world says that in order for you to receive whatever the benefits of religion are, in order to achieve those benefits, religion tells you you got to do stuff. You got to get busy. You got to work harder. You have to do the appropriate activities and then God will respond to you. And that makes you the actor in salvation. What you will see in Ephesians 1 is that Paul completely negates the idea that you are the actor. Instead, he declares over and over that God is the actor. You are the one who is acted upon. But in order to really cement that idea, you have to understand how it is that God sees you. So that's why we're going to read a little bit of Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul goes back and quotes some out of Isaiah. He quotes some from the Psalms, demonstrating that even in the Jewish scripture, what we call the Old Testament, that still the anthropology remains the same. Human beings remain incapable no matter where in the Bible you look. Old or New Testament, the declaration of human incapability looms large and is repeated over and over again, Old and New Testament. Chapter 3 of the book of Romans, starting at verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Paul's question is, are we Jews because we've had so many advantages? 
because we've had the prophets, because we've had the oracles, because we've had the law, does that make us better than the Gentiles? What then? Are we better than they? His answer is not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. Now he's reaching back into the Old Testament scripture and demonstrating, proving that this has always been the biblical description of human beings. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. And so you're not the one. Nobody, no matter how hard they try to follow after the religious dictates, nobody has ever accomplished genuine righteousness in and of themselves according to their works. Because none is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Okay, now if that's all true about human beings, and that has to be true because that's the biblical description, that's the biblical declaration. So that is what is true from God's perspective about human beings and about you. You are incapable. You did not choose God. You did not stir yourself up and go seek after God. You are not righteous, not even one. You do not understand. That is your natural human fleshly state. So then when the question of salvation comes up, can Paul develop a theology that says salvation is dependent on you and what you do? He can't. That can't be his starting point. In fact, it also can't be his ending point because he has already stated that you can't do it. You're incapable. There's none righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. Every single one of them, all of them, collectively have turned aside. Together, collectively, they have become useless. And there is none that does good. There is not even one. He has used that phrase, there is not even one, twice now. After saying there's nobody righteous, and there's nobody who does good. And so, to put a fine point on it, too much of modern religion and the religion that I grew up in tried to convince me that the way that I could attain heaven, the way that I could please God and he would therefore react to me and save me, was if I just did enough good stuff, if I just did enough righteous stuff, then God was obligated to respond to me. I would be the actor, he would be the reactor. But that's not what the Bible says. It does not say human beings have to get busy and make themselves good in order to be saved. We've all heard that, right? If you've grown up in church at all, at some point you've heard the theology that says you have to be good enough to get into heaven. Because after all, good people go to heaven. They tell you that as a child. Be good so you can go to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible, in fact, says that people who are involved in their own self-righteousness, in their own self-morality, in their own self-goodness, those are the people that God withstands because they are arrogant and proud. Instead, what the Bible says is 
bad people, sinful people, depraved, incapable people are the very people that end up in the presence of God unjudged. We'll look at that in just a moment. Let's keep reading for a moment. All of them have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat, the way that they talk, their throat is like an open grave. And with their tongues, they keep lying. They keep deceiving. And the poison of asps is under their lips. You'll notice all three of those phrases have to do with your mouth. How you use your mouth, how you use your tongue, the damage that you do, and the demonstration of who you are is all in how you talk. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Now, I wanted to read all the way to that verse so that you could understand that you are, by nature, at enmity with God. And because there is this constant againstness between you and God, because there is this constant friction between you and God, there is no peace between you and God. None. And yet, as soon as we get to the first verse of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Human beings, natural, depraved, fallen human beings, don't know what peace is. And yet, Paul would say, we have peace. Human beings, by their own effort, cannot please God and cannot be saved and cannot be righteous. And yet, people get saved. And yet, people end up being righteous, spotless, unblemished before the throne of God. How does that happen? That's my whole point in introducing the beginning of the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians is going to explain to you how people go from completely depraved, fallen, God-hating, corrupt human sinners to completely accepted by God in grace and mercy and being part of his everlasting glory. Something has to happen between those two events. Something has to occur between you, the depraved sinner, and you, the righteous saint. And the answer can't be you. Paul just demonstrated that. The answer can't be you. And so at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to say the answer is God, all God, only God, always God, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's how people get saved. Turn, if you would, to the book of Revelation. Chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. I really like that sound. That's a very good sound of pages flipping like that. It's a very good sound. Lee is not adding to it. He's typing in things on his phone. But for everybody who brought an ink and paper Bible, what were you going to say? I'm following you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Maybe you could get an app for your phone that makes page-turning noises when you're looking up passages in the book. That's a million-dollar idea right there. Somebody write that down and copyright it immediately. Chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, starting in verse 9, John writes, After these things I looked. These things include the 144,000. Four angels who were standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds on the earth. After all those things, I looked and behold, there was a great multitude which no man could count from every nation and every tribe and every people and every tongue. That means Jews, Gentiles, every nationality, every race of people on the planet. There is this great multitude in heaven made up of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, and they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes. That language should be familiar to you by now. The robes of righteousness that they have received at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in their white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, By the way, that is in a tense that means they constantly do it. They don't just do it once and then go home. This is their purpose. This is their mission. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures And they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, so what does this tell you? Why did I compare those two passages? It tells you that everybody, all kindreds, tribes, nations, tongues, are guilty. None of them ever stirred themselves up to seek after God. None of them has any spiritual understanding. They are incapable of righteousness. They are all depraved, fallen sinners. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation end up standing before God, worshiping God, standing in his presence and in his glory, crying out about his blessings and his glory and his wisdom and his thanksgiving and honor and all his power and might and attributing all of that to God. So there are some fallen sinners who end up praising and worshiping God for all eternity and standing at the very throne of God, crying out about salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How? How? How does somebody like Tom who I just happened to look at, but I could say it about any one of us in this room. How does somebody as depraved and fallen and mindless and sinful and fleshly as you end up standing before God, praising, worshiping, and giving thanksgiving to God and ending up exactly where he determined you would be? How do you get from who you are 
to where he's planned you're going to be. That isn't a mistake. That didn't happen because you got smart, you wised up, you got busy, you did better works, you decided to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. It's not you. It can't be anything in you because we have already determined that you are no good and incapable and you didn't stir yourself up to seek after God. So it can't be you and yet people wind up in God's presence glorifying God and they don't fry and they're not judged and their sins are forgiven them how does that occur it can only occur because of what Paul is about to lay out in Ephesians 1 it has to be God all God constantly God continually God and it just is not you you get it Amen. now we can go to Ephesians 1 It is necessary to point out again that this letter is an encyclical. That's what Paul intended for it. Paul intended that it would move church to church and that all churches would be aware of this theology, would be aware of this teaching, this doctrine. The reason that this is essential doctrine is because of what I just laid out for you. Desperate, sinful people end up in the glory of God. How does that happen? So Paul lays out the teaching, lays out the doctrine of how that happens. We know that first off, and Paul kind of takes it as a given here, we know what the Gospels say. We know that the activity on planet Earth was that Jesus Christ came to Earth, became our sin sacrifice, gave up his body, gave his blood as a sacrifice for us in our place. He stood in our stead and he took the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. We know that Paul assumes you know that. That is the essence of the gospel. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ is the grounds, the only grounds on which sinful people can stand before God and be forgiven. But now Paul wants you to know that God did all of that on purpose and that he had a plan and that his plan dates back to before the foundation of the world and the plan was about his own glorification of himself and for that reason he created everything to glorify himself and then he caused sinful people to stand in his presence to his own glory, to the glory of his grace, to glorify himself. And that was his plan from the beginning. In other words, this is about God doing what God wants to do that only God can do for the glorification of God because he himself is the only one who is qualified to glorify him because none of us being fallen sinners, could possibly glorify an ever-living being in the way that that ever-living being deserves to be worshipped. And so he designed a plan to glorify himself that includes fallen people being utterly redeemed by the work of his son so that it is all from beginning to end, wall to wall, side to side, it is all about the glory of his grace. And it can't be about you. And it can't be about what you did. Paul starts out the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
you see Paul in many of his epistles having to argue for his apostleship because there were qualifications to be an apostle. There are not any modern-day apostles, get that right. If you take the standard Greek definition of apostolos, which means a sent one, you could be a sent one from someone else. If I send Shane out to get something out of my car, he is, at that moment, my apostolos. I have sent him somewhere to do something for me. But to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one of Jesus Christ, required in the first century particular things like that you had been with him during his three and a half year ministry, that he himself had sent you out, and that you saw the risen Lord after he had died. You had to have all those qualifications according to the book of Acts. When they were attempting to draw straws and find a replacement for the seed of Judas, they laid out those qualifications. It has to be somebody who was with Jesus during his ministry. It has to be somebody who was sent by Jesus particularly. And it has to be somebody who saw Jesus risen from the dead. Now Paul comes on the scene and he refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And people are naturally going to say, wait, you don't have the qualifications. So that's why he argues for his apostleship so frequently, because he actually did see the risen Christ. But he also makes plain to every reader that would read this letter that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one by Jesus Christ, and he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It was the very will of God that made him an apostle because he himself, as we mentioned last week, he was persecuting Christianity. He was out there killing Christians, and then God chose him. God elected him to be an apostle. And so again, when we talk about the theology that Paul is going to develop and share with us, the theology that he got directly from Christ, that theology is not going to start with anything other than the will of God, the determination of God. And in fact, the determination of God since before the foundation of the world, which means that everything that's happened in the world since then is according to his predestination, his predetermination of what has to happen. So that word predestination, predetermined, is not that frightening. And that word election is not that frightening because Paul knows and says it right in the first sentence, I was chosen by God. It's by the will of God that I even am an apostle. So, of course, his understanding of salvation would be based in God's the actor. God does the choosing. He chose me, and he's going to have to choose you because you're incapable otherwise. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints, I told you last week, that the words at Ephesus are not in the earliest, most trusted manuscripts. In fact, anybody who has an ESV in here, does anybody have an ESV on them? What does it say? It probably says, to the saints who are faithful, right? No, it says in Ephesus. Okay, I'm really sorry I called on you. <laughs> it's not. It's the NIV has what? 
a note that it's not in the earliest manuscript, as does the NASB. So here's my point in bringing that up. Paul has written this epistle to the saints who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. I want to put a fine point on that. Who was Paul writing to? Saints in Ephesus. Faithful saints. Not necessarily in Ephesus. But the faithful saints everywhere. The same word that is translated holy is this word translated saints. What does it mean to be holy? That seems like a kind of ethereal word. What does it mean to be holy? The essence of the word hagios means to be separate. When we say that God is holy, what we mean is he is separate from sin. He is separate from human depravity. He is separate from us. The word saints is that same Greek word, hagios. So we are meant to be separate. We're meant to be separate from the world. The example that I use very frequently is to think back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, there were several pieces of furniture. There was the laver of cleansing. There was a table of showbread. There was the altar. There was the caparath on top of the altar. There was the candlestick. There was all this furniture in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Once that was dedicated to God with sacrificial blood, that furniture was then known as a holy object. It was a holy altar. It was a holy table of showbread. Okay, now that was furniture. It can't do righteousness. It can't sin. It's furniture. And yet it was designated as being holy. In what way was it holy then? Was it because it was established in its righteousness? No, it was because it was separate. It couldn't be used for any common use once it was sanctified to God. Once it was set apart for God's exclusive use, it can't be used for any common purpose. Okay, same idea here. If you are a saint of God, you are hagios, you are set aside by God for his exclusive use, and you can no longer be used for any common purpose. That ought to then be the inspiration for holy living. That ought to be the inspiration for following after the dictates of God, the standards of God, the expectations of God, because he has already set you apart for his exclusive use now, those people who are set apart for God's exclusive use and who are faithful to Christ Jesus, those who are looking utterly to Christ for their salvation, those who aren't trusting in their flesh, who aren't trusting in their works, who aren't trusting in their religion, who aren't trusting in themselves and their own knowledge and their own capability, they are trusting utterly and completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ, those are the set-aside people to whom Paul is writing. Is Paul writing to the world? No. No, because he's about to say things that can't be applied to the whole world. But I recall growing up that the implication I was given was that the Bible was God's word 
for everybody. Whoever wanted to read it could read it, and if you got anything out of it, then you got something out of it. You could read it as philosophy, you could read it as literature, because it was meant for the whole wide world, just the generalized word of God. Not here. Paul makes it very plain and very clear, I am writing to the set-apart people who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. And only to those people can he say, grace and peace to you. He can't say that to the whole world. In Romans 3, we read that natural human beings, natural, sinful, depraved, fleshly humans, don't know what peace is. And they have no peace with God. So how can Paul say, peace to you? The ceasing of the againstness between you and God. God is no longer angry at you. How can he say that? Well, because of the first word. And you'll notice that Paul always uses the words in that order. Nowhere will you find Paul say, peace and grace to you. It's always grace and peace. Grace and peace to you because you need grace from God before there's ever going to be peace between you and God. And so he says, grace and peace to you, you saints, you hagios, you set-apart people, you who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I was asked this week if I believed in the Trinity by a person who obviously did not. I wanted to argue via email about it. And I don't argue with random strangers on the internet about theological things. I still believe in the Trinity. Right here, Paul says, grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not just say they were both the same person. He said these are two persons of the Godhead, two personalities. Later, he's going to bring up the Holy Spirit, a third person. And so this is why I believe in the Trinity, because the language of the Bible demands Trinitarian thought. Paul would not write grace and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He would just say grace and peace from God. But instead, he designated the Father. Why? Because Jesus is designated as the Son. In a little while, he's going to refer to God as the Father of Jesus Christ, creating a distinction between the Father and the Son. So Paul was firmly Trinitarian, and so are we. Okay, so there's his opening. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are the faithful in Christ Jesus, or if you're reading Tom's translation, <laughs> to the saints who are at Ephesus, and I'm okay with that. I really am. I, I've been picking on Tom about that, picking on the ESV about it. But I'm okay with that because once this letter was sent from Rome to Ephesus, which is where it went originally, as it was then copied and distributed to other churches, they would naturally have referred to it as the letter from Ephesus. 
So I don't really have a problem with the fact that some later copyist or some later scribe would have added the words at Ephesus. That is where the letter came from to all the other churches. But you need to know that it is meant to be an encyclical, that it is meant to be distributed to all the churches. And that's why the words at Ephesus are not in the earliest, most trusted manuscripts. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 uses the word blessed three times. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. English translations fail us at this point. You may be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Back in the book of Matthew, you read things like, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are uh, peacemakers. That's a completely different word in the Greek. That's makarios. And yet both translated by the English word, blessed. In the Sermon on the Mount, the word that Jesus was using means to be spiritually prosperous. And so some definitions say to be happy, to be joyous in the fact that God has bequeathed upon you some amount of spiritual benefit. Completely different word here. All three of the words in verse 3 are versions of the word eulogos. The eu prefix always means good. Logia, logos, any version of that, means talk or speech. In fact, our English word that we still use to this day, eulogy, is that word. It's the combination of you, good, and words, logia. It means to speak well of somebody, and that's exactly what you do at a funeral. You eulogize somebody. You present a eulogy, which is good speech about somebody. That's the word that Paul uses here all three times, just different versions of it, so that it forms a verb or forms an adjective or forms the noun. This first word, blessed, is eulogetos. And it's talking about God. It's a descriptor of God, that God himself is eulogetos, that God deserves to be well spoken of. God deserves to have you say good things about him. It's an intrinsic character of God. This blessedness, this spoken well ofness. That's intrinsically what God is. It's part of God's character that he remains in this constant state of such holiness, righteousness, and supreme goodness that you cannot say anything bad about him. And so you speak continually well of him because blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that has a lot more depth to it than just blessed. Because some words, I think, lose their meaning through popular use and through repetition. 
we say some words so often that we just forget what lays behind the word what is the meaning behind the word and blessed is one of those words here in the south you can ask somebody how are you and they'll say oh blessed what do you mean by that you certainly don't mean what Paul means by it so it's necessary to dig backwards into the word and into the etymology of the word blessed this continual state of perfect goodness that deserves to be spoken well of is our God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ a moment ago Paul referred to God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ and now he has defined who God is the father of blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ he is the father of Jesus Christ who is the son why is that necessary for Paul to define the father-son relationship because in a moment he's going to say that we are also in the family in fact he's going to use a very particular Greek word the Greek word for son sometimes for child is huios Paul is going to use that word and combine it with the Greek word for placement and then use it as a compound word and say that we are placed as sons and daughters into the family of God we don't belong there we're not there naturally only Jesus Christ is there naturally he is the only begotten of the father he is the singular son of God we become the children of God because God himself places us some translations will use that word son placement in most translations it's translated as adoption because when you adopt a child who is not of your family of your lineage of your bloodline you place them in your family and you place them as an heir in your family as a member of your family well that is exactly what God did Jesus Christ is his son his only son his only begotten son his unique son that's why we refer to him uniquely as the son of God but then we get introduced into the family of God through the activity of God in some placement so that we are placed as children of God in the family of God that we don't deserve to be in because this is all about the glory of God's grace and even in his adoption of you as his child he is demonstrating an astounding grace because he knows you <laughs> he knows what you're like he knows how you think he knows the intention of your heart he knows what you do he knows all your missed opportunities he knows you he knows you're sinful he knows you're depraved and nevertheless out of astounding love how can it be out of astounding love he places you as his child in his family to the glory of his own grace that's the Pauline theology of how we end up in God's presence God is the actor not us blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us now that's the word eulogeo and eulogeo means to confer good words to somebody it's active 
It's verbal in more ways than one. It means to verbalize good thoughts, good intentions to somebody, conferring good words to somebody. Now, you don't deserve to have good words spoken about you. If you know anything about you, you know that you don't deserve to have good words spoken about you. God, in his state of ever-blessedness, deserves constant good words and praise. That's what praise is, speaking well of God. He utterly deserves that. You utterly don't. And yet God, the eternally blessed one, confers on you good words. Well, that's a whole lot more than just blessed. He is conferring on you the words of eternal life. The same God who spoke, let there be light. And because of his powerful words, creation began. That same God spoke light into you. That same God spoke spiritual benefit into you. That same God woke you up by the power of his word. We spend our time here on Sundays and Wednesdays looking into his words because in his word we find all these promises of God that are all these blessings, all these good words that God has bequeathed on us though we don't deserve them. Well, that's pretty darn blessed. God has actually spoken really good words to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Eulogio. That's an interesting word. Even the biblical dictionaries struggle to define the word because it means an elegance of language. It means using the best words to convey the best meaning to you. I mean, think of it this way. Can you begin to really imagine the mind of God who is so gracious and loving that he would not condemn you or hold you guilty for all the ways that you have rebelled against him and the ways that you are intrinsically an enemy against him, can you imagine the mind of God and the breath of God who knows everything, is constantly everywhere, is eternal in his righteous, blessed state, and then he decides to confer some of that to you? Can you begin to picture that? I'm even struggling to describe it. That's kind of what this word means when God uses this elegance of language to commend you to himself. Because nobody else can commend you to him. What, am I going to go talk to God on Leon's behalf? God's going to say, who are you? You're just another sinner like Leon. Only God can speak well of you and commend you to himself. And that's this word that God, the ever blessed one, conferred on you every spiritual blessing, every good word that comes from him is to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual good word. What are God's spiritual good words? Wow, 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 wow. How many words could God use that would just absolutely burst our heads open? What are the spiritual good words of God? And yet Paul would say that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You will notice that every time Paul talks about positive things that God did for us, he always adds in Christ, through Christ, by Christ. Christ is always the intermediary agency. Christ is always the grounds and basis on which God is being good to you. But when God is being good to you, Paul is trying to emphasize here, when God is being good to you, he's being more good to you than you can possibly fathom. And he is doing it in the heavenlies. He has a plan for you. He has a determination for you. He has a pre-determination for you. He has a pre-destination for you. And he chose you before the foundation of the world so that you would be part of that destiny that he has determined for you. And it's a good, 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 good plan, which is why Paul could say things like, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. He says that because he sees God as the ever-blessed one who is ever-blessing us, who is speaking continually good words about us, and our job then is to speak continually good words about him. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. Who is us in that sentence? The saints who are faithful. That's who he's writing to. This is not a universalist phrase. Just as he, God, chose us in him, Christ. God chose us out of the mass of humanity he chose us but when he decided it would be us he chose us through Christ Christ is the intermediary agency of the electing grace of God and so what does he do he places us in Christ and places Christ in us he creates the unity between us and Christ so that God's determination from before the foundation of the world that we will end up in his ultimate glory is done through the finished work of Christ who is a complete savior who saves completely and because of his finished work God can then complete the work that he chose to do from the very beginning why because he doesn't do things without a plan Jesus said which of you builds a tower without first sitting down and making a plan Yet God made a plan. Now he's executing his plan. And his entire plan is done through Christ. And when did he make this plan? 
keep reading. This is the point where some people's heads just come apart. You'll have to duct tape your head closed in order to get this. I've said the phrase many times this morning, but now Paul is going to say the phrase. It's in the Bible. You have to deal with the fact that it's in the Bible. If you reject this phrase, you are essentially rejecting the Bible. Just as he elected us, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before he did anything. Before he said, let there be light. Before he made the first object. He had a plan. And you, here's the astounding part, were part of that plan. You were in that plan, in the mind of God. He chose you particularly, individually, chose you by name and by person. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. So did he know that Christ was going to come to the planet and have to suffer? Yeah, absolutely. That was part of the plan. Did he know that Adam and Eve were going to rebel and fall? Yep. Yeah, that's part of the plan. So that there would be fallen human beings who needed a savior. Did he know that the Jews were going to reject him and not do the law? Did he know that? Yeah, absolutely. Because this is all part of his plan. He is working out his plan at this very moment. And part of that plan is that he chose you. What I'm saying is he did not say, I'm going to choose everybody in that state or on that block or everybody who happens to go to that church who is part of that denomination. I'm going to choose everybody who does these particular things. Instead, he chooses individuals. He knew you by name before the foundation of the world. How do I prove that? Because the book of Revelation tells us that he wrote down names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Same phrase. He wrote down names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, that kind of thinking, that kind of theology that Paul is laying out here might kind of rock your personal theology and might kind of upset the traditions that you've always grown up with, the assumptions that you've always had about how people get saved. But once you understand what Paul has written here, and once you understand that this is all God being the actor and you are the one being acted on and that God is doing all of this for his own glory, once you get that, you will find a security and a peace between you and God that you've never, ever had. You will recognize that God loved you before the foundation of the world. How secure does that make you? Is that all-powerful, all-knowing God going to lose you? And if you didn't do anything to get yourself saved, can you do anything to get you unsaved? Can you upset the plan of God? Measly, little, wormy, little you, can you upset the eternal plan of God that he established before the foundation of the world? Can you do anything that would make God go, whoops, I didn't mean for that to happen. Here I was choosing Jeff, and I had no idea he'd be like that. Is that going to happen? Nope. No, absolutely not. You're secure. You're secure because the work of Christ is finished. 
And you're secure because the plan of God was determined before the foundation of the world. And the one who is working his plan has all the power and has all the knowledge and is everywhere at once and is working out all his plan, bringing history to the end that he said he was going to bring it to, which is why prophecy works in the Bible. Because it's in the hand of an absolute sovereign who can do whatever he wants to do, and he's told us what he's going to do before he does it. You're secure. <coughs> he did all this before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we should become, oh, this is just beautiful. This is just overwhelming. I read it again last night just sitting at my desk and was just taken by it. I, I just, there are no words. If you see yourself in Romans 3, when I was reading that, if you could say, yeah, that's me. That's what I'm like. Then read this description of you. That we should be holy, completely set apart, completely separated, separated from this world, separated from our flesh, separated from our sin, so that we could be holy according to God's standard of holiness and blameless before him. Anybody here in the room think of anything you could be blamed for? I mean, before God. Sure, there, you, you might be blamed by other people. But in front of God, are you blamable? Yeah. You can think of lots of things that God could blame you for. He's not going to. Instead, what he's going to do is work on your behalf. Say such good words about you. Declare such glorious speech about you. That he's going to cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, never to be brought up again. And he's going to make you his standard of holy and blameless. No spot, no blemish, holy, so that you can be in his presence. Because he's not going to decrease his holiness for you. Instead, he's going to increase your holiness to come to him. Wow, that makes me want to just get all Pentecostally. Do you get this? Am I just wasting my breath up here? No. Do you understand what good news this is? The God who is ever blessed, blessed you with eternally luxurious speech that resulted in you standing before him holy and blameless. The next two words say in love. Now, depending on the translation, you'll either find a period after the word him, and then you'll read in love he predestined us. Or you might read that he made us to be holy and blameless before him in love. Doesn't matter because there is no punctuation in the original text. And that's why there is questions about which punctuation is the correct one. I prefer to read it without the punctuation and recognize that what Paul is saying here is that he made his plan before the foundation of the world, the end result of which is that we are holy and blameless because he predestined us to the adoption of sons and he did all of that in love. 
in a love that we can't begin to comprehend in a love that is perfect love unwavering love constant love the kind of love that would send his son to die for you God has commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us the Bible says that that was a demonstration of the love of God that he would send his son to die for us even while we were enemies even while we were sinners nevertheless God would sacrifice his son for us that is love now Paul is saying he took us from our depraved state and spoke such wonderful words over us that we are going to stand before him holy and blameless and he did all that in love there's no other explanation for it he did it because of love and he predestined us there's that word the word is in the Greek pro orizo that word orizo has made its way into the English language as the word horizon what lays out ahead and so all that word predestined means is that God determined what was going to happen that laid out ahead. And he determined it in advance. Since he has all the power, he can make sure that what he determined actually comes to pass. So he looked at the horizon, he looked at the future, he looked at what was to come, and he determined what would happen in that future that he created. That's all the word that predestined means. He predestined, determined for us before the foundation of the world, predestined us to son placement. There's that word. That combination Greek word means that God has placed us as his children, which is why the English translations use the word adoption. But I like the word son placement. That's even more significant to my thinking than adoption adoption in the modern sense is you know sign some papers and drive away instead what is being said here is that God himself determined before he made anything as part of his great eternal plan he determined that he was going to take some depraved ruined sinners and bring them to himself and make them heirs joint heirs with Christ and to be heirs they had to be part of the family and so he took you from who you were and where you were, and he placed you somewhere else. He placed you in his family and placed you in sonship as an heir, as a child of his. And he did all of that for what reason? In love. I don't care which part of this phrase we're talking about. The in love part still fits. It was his great love for you though you don't deserve it that's what kind of love it is that love determined that before the foundation of the world he decided we would be holy and that we would be blameless before him that's the love that caused him to predestine us to be placed as sons again through Jesus Christ to himself to God according to the kind intention of his will. Now don't look over that word kind for just a moment. The kind intention is a single Greek word. It means according to that blessed state he's in where he wants to do good to those that he loves. And so he has intentions for them, but it's eternally good intentions for them. 
and those eternally good intentions are according to his will because it can't be according to your will remember where we started remember Romans 3 remember your incapability to stir yourself up to seek God your inability to do righteousness to do good so it can't be your will you don't have the ability instead the fact that you wind up a child of God is because of his will he decided it he determined it and then he put it into practice into exercise by creating all creation according to the plan that he determined before he made anything in creation and now that plan is working out the end result of that plan being that some fallen sinners are going to stand in his presence holy and blameless and undefiled before him and he's doing all of that because of his own love that we can't begin to comprehend so that the end result is the glory of his grace so that he gets all the worship so that he gets all the praise eternally because he is the ever blessed one he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good intention of his own will to the praise of the glory of his grace we're coming up on 20 years here at GCA as a public church GCA goes back before that for 20 years here publicly there's been a sign out front of this building declaring that this is where the grace of God is preached and we have emphasized Week by week, month by month, year by year, we have emphasized grace, grace, grace. You've heard me make whole sentences out of the word grace. Grace, 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 grace. Why? Because God has a plan since before the foundation of the world, and the ultimate fruition of that plan is the glory of his grace. He's demonstrating himself. He's demonstrating his nature. He's demonstrating his character. He's demonstrating what he's really like. He's giving you a small glimpse into the God that you worship and what he is really like. Not only is he in the enterprise of glorifying himself, but he's making sure that he is glorifying that aspect of himself where even though he is a righteous judge and even though he is a lawgiver and even though he's not afraid to judge people and judge them harshly and judge them eternally, nevertheless, he is also the God who is a abundant in goodness and grace and he wants people to recognize that he wants people to know that about himself and so he's demonstrating it in the most gracious way you could possibly demonstrate grace he's demonstrating it by making sure that completely corrupt fallen enemies of his end up in his glory spotless unblemished unblamed forever it doesn't get more gracious than that. That is the ultimate plan of God, is to demonstrate himself to the glory of his grace. That's why he's doing what he's doing. He's not doing it because you were the good one. He's not doing it because you got busy and got religious enough. He's not doing it because he's so impressed with you and your efforts. He's doing it because you can't do it and you wouldn't do it and you can't do it. So he has to do it all and he's perfectly willing to do it all because this is all about the glory of his grace. 
You get it? He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good intention of his own will to the praise of the glory, the doxa, the demonstration of the very essence of God, the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. There's that Christ thing again. He keeps going back to in Christ, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ. Christ is the intermediary agency through which the grace of God is flowing toward us. I'm talking faster now because I'm fighting the clock. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. The same God who said all these elegant words to us, this indefinably beautiful language that he used toward us. That same God didn't just demonstrate his grace toward us. Instead, he lavished his grace on us. We are overflowing in his grace because we were overflowing in our sin. We were overflowing in our rebellion. We were overflowing in our God-hatingness in order to make sinners like us acceptable to him. He is now overflowing to an abundance of this grace of his. And that is the only way that any of us end up standing before God. I could have saved you a lot of time and just said this. Good people don't get to go to heaven because they were good and God was impressed with them. Bad people end up in heaven because God is really, really gracious to them. Now, I did not say all bad people go to heaven. Some bad people are judged. But all people across the board are bad. And some bad people end up in his glory forever to the praise of the glory of his grace, which we are going to be pronouncing and giving him thanks and glory for. And we are going to be eternally eulogizing him because of the astounding grace that got us from ourselves all the way to his glory. It's him. It's all him. It's constantly him. It's continually him. And that's how people get saved. Give up on yourself, I often say. Give up on yourself and take sides with God against yourself. Because then that God is the gracious God who's going to save you from yourself. Because you can't do it. That was two sentences of the beginning of the letter of the book of Ephesians. And it ought to make you walk out of here. I don't want to hear any of you saying, wow, even though Jim had a spider in his mouth, he spoke pretty well today. What I want you to do when you talk to each other 
when you walk out this door, let's talk about what a good God we have. Praise that God. Worship that God. Pray to that God. Sing to that God. Glorify that God. Bless that God. Say good words about that God. When you're talking to other people, say good words about that God. When you're talking to God, say good words about that God. Say good words about that God because he is the only being in all the universe who deserves good words. I think I'm done. Turn to number 50 in your hymn book. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.